part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. It's fall almost, right? We've had a pretty, uh, pretty tame August here in Georgia, especially. Uh, I, I've started to be able to smell the football in the air. Can you guys smell it? it? Just cut grass, just that humidity turning to a little bit of cool breeze here or there. It just feels like football, doesn't it? I got to thinking this past week as uh, it started to feel like football about one of my favorite segments on ESPN. If you ever watch ESPN, you got like Chris Carter, Chris Berman, uh, the coach, Mike Ditka, and some other guys. And they've come up with this segment on ESPN around NFL football called, Come On, Man. Have you seen it? Have you seen this? Come on, man. And Chris Carter, I think, is the guy who started it. And here's how it works. Basically, in the NFL, you're paid to be excellent. You are the elite of the elite. You're paid to be a professional. And so what happens sometimes, though, is you don't always act like what you're paid to act like, right? And so you got guys who are supposed to catch the ball, fumbling the ball. You got guys who are supposed to pick up the ball and run this way, forgetting which way to go and running this way. And the guys at ESPN, Comedy Central that it is, they picked up on this, and Chris Carter started pointing out these silly plays in the NFL, and he would say, listen, that's boneheaded. Don't do that. Come on, man. You're getting paid way too much money, quarterback, to throw that interception. You're getting paid way too much money to run the wrong way. Come on, man. Don't do that. I got to thinking about it this morning. That's probably a fitting title for today's message. Come on, man. Because I think this passage in Ephesians is Paul's come on man passage to Christianity. You ever have those moments in the church with with those beautiful Christians that surround you? That you just want to say, what were you thinking? Come on, man. You ever have those moments when you're watching the news, when you see another in the long list of pastors year after year fall? for some sort of immoral reason. In this lofty, high esteemed, seemingly very successful position, and then he's done this? Come on, man. Or you got denominations who decide, instead of focusing on things that would be important in the world, they're going to hone in on this little silly thing over here. And when you're a part of those denominations, especially, you just want to cringe and say, come on, man, what are we doing? Is that really what... We need to focus on, is that really what's important? You ever have those come on man moments? Paul has, I think here in Ephesians 5, where we've left off in Ephesians. He's having a come on man moment. Listen to his words. Unfortunately, they're not not as funny. They're not as light and they're not as humorous. In fact, uh, these are some of the most sobering words in his whole letter to the church at Ephesus. Let me give you just a little bit of context of what's going on in Ephesus in Paul's day. In short, it was a cesspool. (laughs) It was bad. It was bad. I mean, we like to say these days that our world is getting getting out of control. That, That even here in America these days, things have gone so far. You know? 
And when you hit your 30s and your 40s, you, you find yourself sounding like your father or your mother. Kids these days. Back in my day, things weren't like this. You, you, you know, those kind of thoughts you have. The truth is, though, as bad as it is in our day, it was just as bad in Paul's day. And in some ways, Paul was in a situation, the church at Ephesus was in a situation that is, that is beyond maybe your comprehension. When it comes to specifically the sexual immorality, Ephesus was a mess. It was a mess. John MacArthur said that the church at Ephesus was like this island in the middle of this sexual cesspool. Now that's a pretty graphic picture. And so here the church at Ephesus sits in this, in this church body as an island in this cesspool of sexual immorality and abuse. And they're wondering to themselves, how do we, how do we live? How do we live out what God has done for us now when all this is going on around us? And there were some guys in the church that didn't try real hard not to fall right back into some of those things. And I think Paul's going to give them his, come on, man, right here. Ephesians chapter 5. He picks up in verse 3, and he starts a new section. We've seen in chapter 4, verse 1, that he has told us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In chapter 4, verse 17, walk no longer as the Gentiles. They're still Gentiles, by the way. He tells them, just don't walk like you used to be. You're different. Walk in the newness of who you are in Christ. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. In this next section, starting in verse 3, he's going to tell us, walk in light. It's a new picture, but it's very appropriate. Walk in the light. Verse 3, but immorality... And all impurity or greed, which might also be correctly translated covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Come on, man. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather we should be giving thanks. Come on, man. For this you know with certainty. There's no doubt about it, in other words. No immoral, impure person. No covetous, greedy man. Which, in essence, he says, is an idolater, if you were to sum it up. None of them has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We should be getting nervous. Verse 6, don't be deceived. Don't let anybody fool you, church. Not even with empty words. Because of these things, what things? All the things he's just listed. All the things that are going on around them that they used to participate in. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. You've got no part. You've got no part. Now let me just give you let me just give you a couple glimpses into what some of these words mean so you understand the weight that they carry. Verse three, immorality, it's the word poinia. We get the word pornography from this. 
But this is not talking about illicit sexual images, pictures, etc. Even though that's the word we get it from, uh, immorality here is the idea most accurately of fornication, sex before marriage, outside of marriage. Point simply outside of God's intent and design for it. That ought not to be named among us. Not just fornication, immorality, but also, he says, any kind of impurity. Impurity is a word that takes the concept of immorality and fornication and takes it a step further and says, any of the manipulation of the sexuality that God has designed into humanity, taking it even now into marriage or into a relationship, but then perverting it. And doing with it whatever you please, whether it be homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever kind of crazy manipulation that we as humans can take with sexuality and do with it, that can't be named. And then he says what's translated in the New American Standard, greed. It's maybe more accurately the word covetousness. And it's not just about money here. In context... It has everything to do with our attitude towards these sexual-directed sins. That we would chase after these things, we would get involved in immorality and impurity in such a way that our cravings control us. Our life is directed, ruled, controlled. Not by the king on the throne of our heart, but by who? our own covetousness. That's why he can come down in the next verse and say, you know what this really boils down to? It boils down to idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is putting somebody on the throne other than the rightful king. And so in a way, just to kind of summarize all this, he says, hey, if you're, if you're doing these things, understand that what you're doing here is nothing short of idolatry. Now, how does that work? It works like this. When you decide to fulfill all the lusts of your flesh, when you decide to go the route of immorality and impurity and you do it in a covetous way, you take the things that God has given you as a blessing. By the way, God has designed us to participate in the sexual uh, arena that he has correctly put into place. Paul's not saying here that we have to shun anything sexual here. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that when we take it and when we are selfish about it and when we put ourselves on the throne of our life and say, we're going to go at this thing in any way we please. We're going to chase satisfaction in this realm of sexuality, immorality. And we're going to let our heart in its emptiness and in its wretchedness direct our course. Then guess what? We're, We're idolaters. We're taking leadership. We're taking kingship. We're being selfish. Who's Lord of our life? Well, we are. We become Lord of our life. And so we want to satisfy ourselves, and so anything goes. Does that sound like our society? Sounded like Paul's. Does that sound like a temptation that we as humans have faced from very day one? Absolutely. Absolutely. But Paul grasps the seriousness, especially of this genre of sinfulness. And he 
plucks it out and he, and he sets it in front of the church and he says, listen, in light of what's going on all around you, let me just make something clear here. We don't, we don't have a part in this. We don't have a, a part in this anymore. That's not, that's not us. That's not who we are. Now, what is Paul doing here? What is, he, what is he arguing for? What is he thinking? Is Paul giving us Christians a list of do's and don'ts so that we can measure up in our living out Christianity? Do we have our own righteousness? Remember the song we just sang? Or is Christ all our whole righteousness? Um, this is potentially a tough passage. It's a deep passage. And it's one that you would do well to wrestle with for long beyond this Sunday morning. The truth is, I can't do this passage justice in the next 10 minutes. Uh, I'm considering coming back to it because it is, because it is so rich and so important. It's, it's pregnant with meaning. But what is Paul doing here? John Piper, when he preached his sermon on this text, he started, he started his sermon in sort of an odd way. Listen to how he began his sermon because this is where he ended his sermon as well. Before he ever got into the, the things Paul was condemning here, here's what Piper said. It's utterly crucial in the approaching of a text like this that we see not only what the scriptures forbid, but also how and why they forbid it. It's plain that Paul is eager to eliminate certain behaviors and attitudes from the Christian life. It's obvious. But how does he attempt to eliminate these things? If we don't see the how, then we don't see the gospel. And without the gospel, the prohibitions listed here become, quote, the letters that kill instead of the spirit that gives life. 2 Corinthians 3.6. And this, Piper says, is true no matter how well we succeed in getting these things out of our lives. Success in morality, in other words, without the gospel is death. He takes it a step further. He says, success in morality, Christians, you you keep the list, but you do it without the gospel as your motive. It's not just death. Piper calls it suicide. So we must devote our earnest attention this morning not only to what the apostle prohibits, but also to how he motivates this prohibition and how he enforces it and how he replaces it with something else. You see, if just by the initial reading of this text, you in your heart are saying, Amen, go get them, Pastor. None of that should be named among us. And you are drawn to the letter of the law, then I think you're missing the heart of the apostle Paul right here. I do not think that the Apostle Paul is looking into the eyes of the sincere, true, converted, authentic Christians at the church of Ephesus and saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What do I mean by that? I think like any good preacher, Paul is looking at the church in Ephesus and he knows what all preachers should know. That among the flock, 
Among those who are in the church, there are those who Christ is not in. Let me say that again. Among those who are in the church, there are those who Christ is not in. Is Paul smart enough to figure that out? I think he is. Church, I would argue, and many smarter than me, would argue that Paul's words here are directed not not to the repentant, authentic Christian who's heartbroken over their sinfulness, who've maybe stumbled in one of these areas, but have gotten themselves back up, wiped themselves off, fallen at the foot of the cross, claimed the forgiveness that is theirs in Jesus Christ, knows good will what grace has done for them, sees their sin as something hideous, and cries out for forgiveness. And when they hear the songs that, this is all my righteousness, they know, they know very well that there is no righteousness in themselves. I, I think Paul sees those men and women in the church. That's not who he's talking to. Who is he talking to? I think Paul's talking to that man, that woman, that one who was, we know from history, who was in the church at Ephesus and who remains in our churches with a new flavor of perverted theology. The one who sits in the church and they are deceived. Verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. What is the deception going on here at Ephesus? And what is the deception that continues on in the churches today? The deception goes like this. I'm in Christ and his grace covers me. Yippee. Great. I suppose now that because I have been given grace freely and that it is nothing I have earned or done, then I can do whatever I would like to do. Paul would say in Romans, may genitoi, may it never be. I had a, had a professor in seminary, a little Irish guy. He was like 140 years old. He was about this tall, bald-headed. He wore a suit about two sizes too big for him. He read from a New Testament Greek Bible, walked me through Romans. Galatians, in my time in seminary, Dr. Jack McGorman, one of my favorite professors, there wasn't a a day as we walked through Romans that he wouldn't break down in weeping for the grace of God. When he got to the passage where Paul presumes the argument of those who would say, if we just give out grace for free, then won't people abuse it? Won't they just do whatever they want to do? Won't they just continue to sin? And Paul says in that strong language, may it never be, as it's translated in our English, Dr. McGorman says, this is as close to Paul ever comes to cursing in the Greek language. He said, dare I say, even in this seminary classroom, that maybe a more apt translation, and you got to picture that little guy, bald head, in that big suit, little Irish guy. He said a more apt translation would be Paul's response to that idiotic question. It's hell no, that can't, that can't possibly be. That's the strength of Paul's attitude towards some nonsense like that. Come on, man. (laughs) But there were those who were in the church, but Christ was not in them. At the church at Ephesus, who were still living in the cess of their past life. They didn't hear what Paul had said, not to walk any longer as Gentiles. They didn't understand 
what their calling was. They didn't understand chapters one, two, and three, what God had done for them so lavishly in grace. That hadn't done anything to them. They hadn't been transformed. What had they done? They had ascribed to a new religious system. Does that happen today? It sure does. Do we have folks that will attach themselves to churches and religious systems just because it sounds like a good idea and maybe they'll teach my kids something moral? And so they ascribe to a high and lofty moral system that sounds good, that makes good southern sense to us, but God himself is not in their heart. There has been no transformation in them. I think Paul looks into the church at Ephesus and he says, let's be clear here. Come on, man. These sort of things don't happen in the life of the truly converted. What what we need to know is, for those of us who may be sitting here in the church, but not with Christ in us, is that the weight of these verses, we can't lift off our own shoulders. Because Paul says that there is a certainty. And the certainty is that the man who continues in that kind of impurity, that kind of covetous, immoral lifestyle, that one whose life is directed towards self. There is no repentance. There is no grief over sin. There is no shame. The Old Testament said of Israel that their problem was as they, as they found their way into the nations that they were surrounded by is that they forgot how to blush. In the idolater that sees no sin in his own life, those things seem as normal and fine and separate from their Sunday life, Paul says, there is a certainty. The certainty is this. None of those people have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't be deceived. Don't sit in church week after week after week thinking that you can still live these old ways and have an inheritance. Have a share. Be a joint heir with Jesus. He didn't die for any small thing. In fact, he died for the weight of these verses. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon who? Who does it come upon? Does it come upon the children of God? No. Look at what he says. It comes upon sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. That's the truth of who he's talking to. He's talking to the sons of disobedience. The tares among the wheat. And I think as a preacher, he's pleading with them, stop playing games. Come on, man. Stop, stop fooling yourself. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Don't let the deceiver from ages ago who's been deceiving all along the way, don't let him deceive you. You know, there was a group that Paul probably has in mind here that uh, started up in the first century. They were called the Gnostics. It's another sermon for another day. I don't want to bore you with the history of it, but the Gnostics, they were the first breed of what continues in every generation, just with a new flavor, with a new sin. The Gnostics, they used sleight of hand and sleight of words. They basically came up with a system that allowed them to separate their physical life so that they could do anything they wanted with their physical body, abuse it any way they wanted, as long as they had their spiritual life over here. And so I can live this spiritual life 
separate from my physical life and the two have nothing to do with one another. I can be completely spiritual, but I can live like hell over here. That's pretty convenient, isn't it? They were called the Gnostics. It's the word gnosis in Greek. It means to be the ones in the know. And here's what they would do. They would look at the Christians around them who were, who were living as children of the light, not of sons of disobedience, and they would pat them on the head and say, when you, when you get a little smarter, when you grow up, you'll realize that it's okay. You, you've got grace enough, and so you can do all this stuff that you want to do over here. And Paul, that just blows his mind. He says, listen, come on, man. Those things ought not even be named among us. But let's be clear. The Apostle Paul is not saying that faith, faith plus sexual purity in this case equals salvation. Let me say that again. The Apostle Paul is not saying that faith plus purity equals salvation. He's not saying that faith plus your good works in avoiding sexual immorality and in being sexually pure will get you into the kingdom and keep you there. He's not saying faith plus works equals salvation. Listen to me now. He's not saying that. You say, well, pastor, are you sure? It's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. In fact, it's not what the New Testament says. Some of you should rightly be thinking, well, what about James? Doesn't James say that? No, James says that faith without works is dead. Doesn't that mean that faith plus works equals then salvation? Hang on, that's not what it means. Listen to what James says. Follow his logic, follow his math. Faith minus works does not equal no salvation. But what? Faith minus works equals no faith. There's a difference. He's telling you that a faith that is accompanied by a life that continues without any display of true repentance, without any display of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, shows that the person, what? Never had faith in the first place. It shows that faith, whatever faith they're claiming, hanging out in the church, it shows that faith for what it truly is. It's a fraud. It's a fraud. You're sitting in the church in Ephesus, you're doing these things. Paul's saying, come on, man. Those things ought to not even be named among us. That's not us. He's trying to show you a way in which you can uncover a claimed faith and distinguish it from a real faith. Some of us claim faith, but it's not a real faith. So Paul's point is the same. It's not that faith plus being good equals you being saved. Instead, what he's saying here is that immorality, unrepentant, sin in this area, it uncovers, uncovers a heart that does not know God's grace. And there is a certain judgment that is awaiting that person. As dangerous as that sin is, my friends, one pastor put it this way, I want you to understand that in the end, it will not be the sin, but the unrepentance towards that sin that will doom that man, that woman to hell. Paul is saying to this person in the church who thinks they can just go right down their merry little way in this direction with no consequences, he's saying this. You go there and you're going to find yourself one day standing before a throne. 
And you're going to find yourself standing there before the throne with the people who decided to go the way of fulfilling their desires and getting their joy and their meaning and their satisfaction in the way that I, God, your creator, said I hate. Because it destroys. And you're not going to find yourself standing with a multitude of people who recognize their weakness, their sin, who struggle with it and wrestle with it all of their life, but who longed more than anything else for the forgiveness and relationship that comes with God through Jesus Christ and have cast themselves on his mercy and his grace. And by his grace, they came to desire him more than anything else. He is the king of the throne of their heart. You're going to find yourself condemned. The Apostle Paul pleads with the church, Christians, I love you too much to let you fall into that category. If, if that's you, we ought not be partakers. We ought not be partakers. What is the attitude we should have? The attitude we should have is the attitude that Luther, Luther penned well. Listen, although I am an unworthy and condemned man, My God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part. Out of pure, free mercy. So that from now on, I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Why should I not therefore freely, joyfully, with all my heart and with an eager will do all things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his inestimable riches? That's our attitude. That's the Christian attitude. You say, well, how do you know that's who he's talking to? How do you know, pastor, that that's who he's talking to? Look at the further evidence. Verse 8. For you were formerly, what does it say? You were formerly in darkness? doesn't say that, does it? Howard Hendricks uh, great theologian, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he said that from the very beginning, Christianity's had one major problem. We have an identity crisis. We, we always have a problem figuring out who we really are. And the deceptor, the deceiver, our adversary, he helps us <laughs> to be unclear, doesn't he? Before we come to Christ, he deceives us into thinking that we are something that we're not, that we're good enough on our own. And then guess what he does? Once we come to Christ, that we'll never measure up to be good enough for the God who has so graciously saved us. Isn't it amazing how he deceives us? Paul says in verse 8 something very interesting. And this should just and this should just blow you away. Earlier in chapter 4, he described what it meant to walk as they used to walk as Gentiles. And he said, you used to walk in darkness, separated from God. You don't walk that way anymore. That's not what you've learned in Christ. Here in this section, he's going to say that we walk now as children of the light. But don't miss what he says. He says, you were formerly not just in darkness, you actually were darkness. And then he goes on to say, you are now currently true 
real deal Christian, you are light. You're not just in light. And let me tell you why that's important. I can't say it any better than one commentator did, so I'm going to read to you. The most important thing about this statement is that Paul does not say merely that before their conversion, Christians are in darkness, and that now since their conversion, they are in the light, though that is true. He says something more profound. Before they were darkness, now they are light. He is pointing to a change in them. Not merely to a change in their surroundings. It's not just that they're in light now. (laughs) They are light. See the difference? Before, they were not only in darkness. Darkness was in them. Their constitution was dark. Their very being was dark. And now they are not only in light, they are light. And therefore must shine out as lights to their benighted society. That makes all the difference. If it is only a question of seeking the light or living in the light, then Christianity is no different from any other religion or philosophy. And there is no more hope for it than from any other religion or philosophy. Do you catch that? Listen, Christianity is not just a group of systematic truths that we ascribe to and we decide to attach ourselves to. Following Christ, being in Christ, having Christ in us, it's a change that happens in us. We don't just move out of the darkness and decide we're going to live in the light now and now that's following Christ. We're going to follow him. He is the light, that's true. And so we're going to live in the light. It's more than that. Paul says, don't you understand, church, that you actually are light? You are, what he says, children of light. You're offspring of the one who is light. Who is the light of the world? Jesus is the light of the world. We're in him. He's in us. We are joint heirs with him. We are his offspring. We are children of the light. And we're not just now living out Christianity, trying to measure up to all the rules and regulations, trying to walk in light. The truth you need to know about yourself, Christian, is this. You are. You see why Paul's having one of those come home man moments? He's looking into the church here at Ephesus and he could do so down through the ages, right down to Cornerstone. And he could say, what what in the world are you doing? You're fumbling over here. You're throwing interceptions over here. You're running off the field over here. You can't do that. He's throwing flags left and right saying, come on, man. Why, though? Why? Not because Paul is looking for us to keep a list, to measure up to the legal rules of Christianity, not just to live in the light like good religious folk. He wants you to know that you are light. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, you know what God has done for you? He has brought you out of darkness and plunged you into light by the blood of the light, His Son, Jesus Christ. You see the difference? Is there legalism right here, Paul? None at all. None at all. It's all grace. Does that mean I get to live the way I want to live then? (laughs) Come on, man. That would be true if it's just a standard that you're trying to live by. But what Paul knows is that this is a relationship that changed us from the inside out. 
And you can no more walk in that sin as you can go back and be unborn again. Let me close with what Spurgeon said on the topic. We're ever to see a pure and godly England. That's where Spurgeon was. And we could say pure and holy America or just Jefferson or just Cornerstone Church. We're ever to see that kind of pure and godliness. We must have a, what he called a gospelized England. Not just a, a moral. That's the point. Not just a legal. If we are to put down drunkenness and the social evil, it must be by the proclamation of the grace of God. Men must be forgiven by grace, renewed by grace, transformed by grace, sanctified by grace, preserved by grace. And when that comes to pass, the golden age will dawn. But while there are merely teachings of duty and regulation, and while men are left to do it themselves in their own strength, it is labor in vain. Spurgeon says, you can flog a dead horse a long while before it stirs. You need to put life into it, or else all your flogging will fail. To teach men to walk who have no feet is poor work, and such is instruction in mere morals before grace gives a heart to love holiness. The gospel alone supplies men with motive and strength. And therefore, it is the gospel that we must look as the real reformer of men. Pray with me. Father, we sang earlier, Oh, the wonderful cross, love so amazing, so divine. And it is. It is amazing grace and it is, it is divine when we look to the cross. And the writer of the song Got it, got it correct. That love that amazing, that divine, it demands from us our life, our soul, our very all. It doesn't demand it as a legal obligation. Lord, the truth is, is that my heart, my affections, for you who first loved me, demand that I respond by giving you everything. Lord, these things ought not be named among us. And if they are, it would call us to question how valid our faith is. There is no deal in Scripture that says we can Fulfill all our own desires. Take those things that you have given us as good gifts and abuse them in such a way just to meet all of our own needs and covetous desires. There's no deal that says we get you 
and we get everything in this world that we want, no matter what it is. That's just not how it works. So if that's the way that we are living here this morning, Father, then we ought to be sobered. Because with certainty, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God. For the man who walks into those ways without any thought for repentance, without any shame, without any grief, he ought to be the most miserable Christian in the world if he be a Christian. And he ought to fight his flesh kicking and screaming. Why? Because you paid too high a price, Lord. And we are so grateful and so humbled by what true grace is that we would not even have these things named among us. We we would not even talk about them, joke about them. We'd not be flippant about them. We'd understand the seriousness that that drove your son to the cross for these things. And we'd flee from them. Lord, give us fewest come on moan, come on man moments in our lives. Help us to run scared from our sin. But Lord, keep our motives pure. Keep our motives centered on the gospel and on grace. For you would not have your children live in fear. Sober, yes. Wise, yes. Serious, yes. In fear, no. No. You would have us live out of gratitude. And we get to climb into our daddy's lap and be right at home. Grace is just that big. We thank you for it. And from our hearts, it demands everything. And so we'll give it. We'll give it. You got just a moment left. We're going we're gonna to sing one last song. If today your heart your heart is uh, climbing your throat and into your brain and, and, and rattling your cage saying that uh, something's not right. And take joy. There is sufficient grace at the foot of the cross. And none of us in here who are in Christ brought anything in our hands to the cross. We all came empty-handed. We waved a white flag and we gave up. And we took a righteousness that was not our own. And we put it on because our Father says it's ours. If you've never put on the righteousness of Christ, sacrifice of the cross, then today, Scripture says, is the day of your salvation. And forevermore, you can be confident that you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God.
You're not a partaker with the sons of disobedience. But as a children of light, you are light. That's the promise that his children get. And it can be yours. Don't leave today. Don't go back to Monday wondering. Grab me at the door. Come up during this last song. And it'd be my greatest joy to tell you that you can be light. Why don't you stand? Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.